What happens when mom and dad owe more than they have in the bank? Then, when their hospital bills are higher than the value of their home and yours combined? Or when somebody says, did you know that you're actually personally liable for all those bills that have been mounting on your parents' desk back home? You might be surprised. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your MO. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for, and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hello, everybody. This is Nancy May at Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. And in this episode, we're really tackling a very difficult question, one that's emotional, not that taking care of a loved one, whether they be older or younger or at any stage in their life, but financial issues really are things that we don't like to talk about, and especially when we get into trouble. And my guest here today is Sean Yesner, an attorney who is a specialist in foreclosure, bankruptcy, and all things financial as it relates to the law. He is the author of a book called Crushing Debt. He is also the host of the Crushing Dead Pot, not Crushing Dead, I should say Crushing Debt podcast, and a second book called Debt Free in One Hour or Less. So with that, he has also been practicing law for 23 years. He actually started practicing law in the foreclosure business where he worked with banks and took homes away from people, which is not something that I think we're all terribly proud of. From that, he was able to learn what the other guys are, how the other guys think and how to protect those of us who may be caught in those situations. But our conversation today specifically revolves around medical debt and medical foreclosure, which is not a subject that a lot of people talk about. Yet it has been in the forefront of a lot of private discussions behind the scenes with a number of different groups that I have talked to. That's a long intro to my friend and guest, Sean Yesner. Thank you for joining us, Sean. Yeah, thanks, Nancy. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. You know, one of the things I have seen, I did some additional research as to if the percentage of seniors who are going into foreclosure or debt or bankruptcy is actually increasing. The reports are actually fairly conflicting, but hearing some stories from friends and and other people that I know over the years, the, the problem really comes down to the cost of taking care of ourselves at a certain point in time. And it may not be that we're older, but some sort of issue comes up. And in many cases for our parents, pensions have decreased or been eliminated. I had one friend whose dad had a pension and then the company was sold and he lost his pension. They didn't, the pension debt in the sale didn't go over. IBM has been talking about this for years with their pensioners. So that's another challenge. Companies have actually put the responsibility of maintaining your own financial health without their involvement into our own hands, meaning that we now have 401k plans that we can contribute to or not. And then, of course, the increase of medical expenses, the cost of insurance, and a lot of other things, which sort of, not sort of is, but it is looming when we have a personal health crisis that we don't know what to do with. So how do we even start looking at some of this stuff or even noticing it that it may be a problem? Well, and I know that 
traditionally, a lot of people do declare bankruptcy because of medical debt or medical issues. And whether those medical issues are, I had this procedure or I had this hospital stay or I had this accident or I had this whatever, and it created a bunch of medical debt. Or I've even seen the scenario where I had this procedure and I couldn't work for X number of weeks because of it. And because of that, I lost a bunch of income and fell behind in my job. So those are really the two ways that I see medical debt impacting people in terms of their finances. I think currently the biggest issue that the country faces, at least for right now, is student loan debt. And so that, I think, has sort of taken over as one of the top drivers. But I know that's not what this show's about, so we're not going to talk about that. But that's okay, because you look at the baby boom generation... And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in that category. And many of us have paid not for our, not just for our own education, but for the education of all our kids, yeah. because we felt that that was our responsibility. Some people are adamant at saying, yes, it's my responsibility parent to pay 100% of my, my kids' education. But my parents didn't do that. What fascinates me about the economy is that you can't really just look at one thing. Everything is interconnected. Everything is interrelated. So you know, you mentioned it's complicated, as they say, right? Right. You mentioned, you know, people's pensions and 401ks and whatnot. Well, that's when you're, how many of us were told, I know I was by my parents, start investing in your retirement as soon as you possibly can. I did that right in college from right from the get go. And you've got the 401k built up. Well, if someone doesn't do that, or if someone has an emergency where they need to pull from their 401k and then they get to retirement age and all they have is social security now. Well, social security mm-hmm. has its own issues and is really not designed to su- be the sole support for someone who's retired and, and in their later years. I mean, I know tons of people, even in my own family, that are still working just because social security isn't enough. And so all of that gets interrelated. You know, I remember I was practicing during the foreclosure meltdown from 2009 to 2000 you know, whenever 12, 13, 14, whenever you want to say it ended. And I remember people saying, we need to stop foreclosures. And I said, well, then we need to stop the things that cause foreclosures. We need to stop people from getting sick. We need to stop two income household where one of the spouses dies. We need to stop divorces. We need to stop people losing their jobs. We need to stop all of those things. If we stop those things, we'll stop foreclosures. And I think the same thing applies to bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to stop people losing their jobs. We need to stop people getting divorced. We, and, and I'm being a little facetious because we'll probably never stop that kind of stuff. So unfortunately, I don't think bankruptcies and foreclosures are ever going away. But you know, there's a whole bunch of tools I have in the toolbox to help people that are struggling with medical debt, credit card debt, whatever. And even we had talked pre-interview the intersection of those two things, credit card debt and medical Correct. debt. So you know, everything is sort of interrelated. Every one variable impacts another variable. And, and so I think just relying on If you have a financial advisor, if you have a retirement plan, or even just calling someone like you, someone like me to say, here's my situation. What do I do? Yeah. I see the edge of the cliff coming before I get there. What do I do? That's a really important comment is I see the edge of the cliff coming. What do I do? But before we get there, because I'd love to go into some of the the tools that you mentioned, is just sort of explaining bankruptcy. There are actually two different types of bankruptcy, actually three different types of bankruptcy. I'm familiar with 
the the business types of bankruptcy just because my work beforehand and, and knowing what goes on in the corporate world. But there's there are other forms of bankruptcy from a personal perspective I'm not familiar with that might be helpful for people to understand what they are and what they mean personally. So the bankruptcy code's broken into odd numbered chapters, except it has one even numbered chapter. Chapters one, three, and five are all the administrative. So one, three, and five govern the way all the other bankruptcies work. Then you've got the most popular one that, that most people, when they think of bankruptcy, they think of that's chapter seven is uh, my income is below a certain threshold where I can't afford to repay my debts. So I'm going to file bankruptcy and my assets are either all protected, all exempt, or I have enough money where so let's say the example I use is a car. In Florida, you get a $1,000 exemption for your car. So if your car is worth $4,000 free and clear, the bankruptcy trustee is going to say, okay, you get a, it's worth $3,000. You get a $1,000 exemption. Therefore, you have $2,000 of value in your car that is not exempt. You got to give the trustee $2,000 or you got to give the trustee Ooh, the car. One of the two. That's like not great. My bicycle legs don't go that far. Right. A couple of things there. I mean, we sometimes the trustee will take a very short payment plan. Very, very, very short sometimes. They don't like doing it on cars because of liability and insurance issues. But sometimes they'll take a very, very short one month, two months, three months, four months, something like that payment plan. Sometimes family members can step in and help out. Sometimes we can negotiate with the trustee, you know, I'll give a 10, trustee will give a 10% discount if it's paid within X number of days. You know, there's all, all kinds of And a of home is things. protected in Florida, from what I understand, correct? In Florida. That's not true in other states. I know in Florida, I think it is, right? Right, right. In Florida, homestead is exempt. And that's one of the things I've said is that Florida has the best homestead protection in the country. Some of the worst personal property protections, but the best homestead exemption. There is a slight quirk there in terms of when the house was purchased, how the house was purchased, that kind of stuff. But but yeah, the general rule is that homestead in Florida is exempt. So what would happen is, going back to my example, mm -hmm. say, well, here's two grand. I borrowed it from my mother, my daughter. Here's the two grand. The trustee says, great, takes that two grand, spreads it amongst the creditors. You're done. A chapter seven takes four to six months from the time we file it until the time it's totally over. Maybe a little bit longer if the trustee has to administer some of the money. And the best chapter seven cases are the ones where all of the assets are exempt. So I have this car and it's worth $10,000, but I have a $9,000 loan against it. So there's only $1,000 of equity and I can protect all of that with the exemption. So those types of situations, chapter sevens are very quick, very easy, fairly straightforward. And that's what people think of. I'm, I'm wiping my hands clean. The trustee gets no money. The creditors get no money. All the debts wiped out. So don't necessarily go buy a bigger, fancier car. <laughs> Correct. When the bankruptcy code was amended in 2005, right around the time I first went off on my own. So I wasn't used to all those old habits of the bankruptcy code, but it was amended in 2005. And one of the things that they put in there was, as an attorney, I'm not allowed to advise somebody to incur debt Ooh. in order to look better. For a bankruptcy. So if someone says, should I go buy a car so that I can file bankruptcy? I legally, I can't answer but that. But that question. is a strategy that some people use then. It is. And my answer to that question is, if you need a car, buy a car. If you don't need a car, then let's figure because out. Because you're still incurring way. debt either way and creating a bigger problem. But if you need a car, buy a car. I mean, I'm not going to tell somebody to drive around in something that's unsafe if they need to. Don't go buy the Humvee. Right. Don't go from a Honda Civic to a BMW. 
You know, yeah. don't go from a Toyota Corolla to the top of the line Lexus. But, it, you know, if, good. You, if you need a car, get a car. And so that a basic overview of chapter seven. The other one people think of is chapter 13. That's payment plan bankruptcy. And so chapter 13 is for an individual. It's only for individuals. Mm -hmm. Businesses, corporations, LLCs cannot file chapter 13. But chapter 13 is in a situation where either your income is such that you can afford to pay some money back to your creditors, or going back to that example, if somebody had a car that was worth 10 grand and it was free and clear and you only get a thousand dollar exemption. So the trustee is going to say nine grand or give me the car. And you say, well, I can't afford nine grand. Well, we can do a chapter 13. You can pay that nine grand to the trustee over a 60 month payment plan becomes 150 bucks a month. And then same thing, trustee takes that nine grand and spreads it out amongst all the, all the creditors. And so what I typically say in a situation like that, let's say your income shows that you have an extra $150 at the end of the month or the car example, where it's $150 at the end of every month. So 150 uh, times 12 is 9,000. 9,000 times a five-year, 60-month payment plan is 45,000. So you're paying back $45,000 of debt. Now, mm -hmm. if, um, actually, I'm sorry, it'd be, it would just be 9,000. It would be 60 months okay. times 150. It would be $9,000. So I apologize. So anyway, you're paying back $9,000 to your unsecured creditors. If you have $18,000 in debt, you're paying back 50% of what you owe. If you have $45,000 of debt, you're paying back one-fifth of what you owe, and so on. So uh, you're paying back a percentage. Now, if, if the trustee says you got to pay back nine grand, 150 bucks a month over 60 months, and you have $7,000 in debt, then you're paying back 100% of what you owe, but you're paying mm -hmm. it back over a five-year zero right. in interest in a lot of cases. A little less pain along the way. Now, right. now this is, we've just sort of described two types of personal type of bankruptcy. But as we're talking, I'm thinking, let's say there's a, an older couple that's living in a home. They don't drive that often. They may not live in Florida or they may live anywhere in the country. And now they're, they don't have the means to cover even monthly payments because they're paying for food. They're trying to get to the doctor. So they need a caregiver to help them. This becomes a whole lot more complicated and even knowing that as a, an adult child of somebody like that, or even the parent of a parent of an adult child who is in financial situation, when you co-sign something, now that debt obligation goes to moi. If I owe a debt jointly with somebody who files bankruptcy, their responsibility to pay back that debt is eliminated or is discharged. My responsibility to pay back that debt is not because I didn't file bankruptcy. So yeah, I would still be on mm -hmm. the hook. And we run into similar issues. A lot of times I get the question, well, should I put my daughter on my adult daughter on title to my house with me? Or mom and dad added me to their bank account in case something happens to them, I have access to the bank account. And I get it. But then mom and dad added me to their bank account so that I have access to that bank account in case of emergency. But then if I have to file bankruptcy, that bank account potentially is an asset of my bankruptcy, even though it's mom and dad's bank account. So mm -hmm. we do have to be careful. I, I do know a, a few here locally in the Tampa Bay area, uh, a few probate attorneys, estate planning attorneys, elder law attorneys. And so if that is the situation, I want to 
add my son to title, my daughter to title. I want to put my kids on my bank account, you know, that kind of stuff. We can joint consult with an elder law attorney, probate attorney to make sure we plan out that kind of stuff properly. But yeah, it can become entangled in terms of, you know, I added my son to the title so that if something happened to me, he wouldn't have to go through probate, but then my son gets into debt problems. And now we got to worry about that house being in his bankruptcy. Or That's what a trust is for to help with, with many of those situations. Right. The other thing that I see that people are totally unaware of, especially if a parent goes in or both parents go into a care facility is understanding contract law. Yeah. And there's this nasty little clause that depending upon how it's worded, where you sign the the adult child, the POA, the the adult family member that's taking care of the parent with that decision to help them do that. And you may not know that you are financially and legally responsible for all of the cost of that care facility if mom and dad run out of money. Yeah. Well, and the opposite. And Medicaid and Medicare won't pick up because you are the one that signed the contract. Right. And and the reverse. I mean, my yeah. my son is fine. My my ten year old is fine, but he just had um, lazy eye surgery to correct his lazy eye. Well, he's a minor, so responsibility is mine to pay for that surgery. I mean, we had insurance and we hit our deductible. Sure, my responsibility to pay for his surgery. Oh boy, having just been to a doctor for a for a checkup, reading um, I read everything. You know, just read through. And actually, when doctor kind of questioned me, the staff because. I wouldn't sign all the papers. And I said, you said I'm agreeing to the privacy statement. You haven't shown me the privacy statement. Oh, here it is. Not that they aren't all pretty much the same, but I just want to make sure that it's there. It's just a CYA on, on, on my sort of you know retentive component yeah. there. But, but there is that little line saying that, are you signing as a guardian or for somebody else? Sometimes a caregiver will sign. A non-family related person will sign for those people when the person has dementia. Does that make them, the non-family member, obligated to any cost? Well, of course, my answer is going to be, it depends on the specific language in the contract. But I would say generally, if there's language in that contract that says they're going to be responsible for the payment of expenses and they sign that contract to check that person in the facility, then yeah, I think it could be possible. So even a friend or a neighbor who's signing for a friend's parent that they're helping to go is potential. That opens up a whole nother can of worms. I mean, it depends on how nasty the medical care place is, right? Yeah. Even and and make, make sure you're reading the contract in that scenario before you sign anything. Yeah. Just don't check off, you know, glaucoma, diabetes, that kind of thing. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the, the little tricks that you have. I know one of them was, I certainly did it with my parents when I saw I would say I was concerned because I was doing this long distance and I had a credit card down here at the house for the aides to use to go grocery shopping things. So I didn't have to send cash down, do it that way or do some other things. But my dad always felt comfortable having cash in his, in his wallet, whether he needed it or not. And that's fine. I always made sure he had cash in his wallet when I came down. But he, even still, I was worried about what happens if a caregiver that I may have hired and I didn't necessarily know that well, they may have checked out legally, financially, and fine, but stuff happens along the way. You don't know what's going to happen in somebody's life to make their choices different than what you expected them to be. And now all of a sudden they go to the bank and they pull out $2,000 and then another $2,000 and another $2,000. I've heard of that. We've all heard of those stories. Right. So what I did is I 
last when I was in, I came into the bank and I said, look, I do want to make sure that there's a stop on this on this account and no more than X amount of dollars could be drawn out over any period of time. And I we put a limit on it or any time more than $200 was taken out, I got a call to verify it was okay. And that happened. Yeah. So anytime checks were cashed on a new aid, I just, I got a call from the bank saying, is it okay to, to cash this? So that was one way to do it. Did the same thing with credit cards. Yeah. You can put all kinds of spending restrictions and limits uh, on, on credit cards. That That's an easy call to the credit card company. The ATM card is the hardest and you just don't give them the ATM card, period, bum, done. Yeah. So what are some of your suggestions to help with managing this whole financial process when in fact we might hit there or need to consider going there? How do we stop it? Yeah, I think one of the biggest mistakes, a couple of mistakes that I I think people make, medical debt is not in in the, if you look at all the different types of debt that we have, mortgage debt, car debt, uh, credit card debt, medical debt, student loan debt, IRS debt. When you look at the, I don't want to say hierarchy, but I can't think of a better word of all this debt, I would sort of put medical debt at the bottom. I agree that it's the easiest to negotiate. I agree that it's the less scary in terms of what they'll do to try to collect it. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, if you know you're going to be incurring a lot of medical debt, I would call the insurance company, tell them, hey, we got this surgery coming up. We got this, that, the other thing coming up. See what the insurance company recommends. There's always, I mean, we all have experience with prescriptions and can we get the generic form so we get the cheaper prescription and whatever drug programs are out there? Good RX is one of the programs my wife uses. So you you have those issues. And then talk to the medical provider, the the insurance companies, the doctors. You know, I remember when we took my son for his surgery, they said your total obligation is gonna be whatever it was, uh, and and you owe a down payment or deductible of whatever three hundred bucks, I think it was. We knew that was coming, so we had that. We paid that. And then right there, before the surgery, even as we were checking in, I said, okay, on the balance, can I pay you 200 bucks a month until it's paid off? And they said, yeah. You had the wherewithal to ask up front or be told up front, this particular procedure is going to cost, I'll put a number out, like $10,000. Right. Well, for me, I think it was like three, but yeah. Well, either either way, whatever it is, Knowing to ask in advance as opposed to, and, and not necessarily putting the life on, on a financial dollar budget, right? But to understand what you may incur as a result of something that needs to be done first and whether that carrier, that provider, that doctor, the anesthesiologist that sneaks in there and may not necessarily be on your medical plan. Right. And now you're being charged more for it than you expected because it's not covered by your insurance company is in fact, what's the nut that you got, right? So, but even if you don't know that information going in, like I did, you get the bill. You then call the billing company and say, hey, I just got this bill for three grand. I mean, I did this for myself. I I forget what it was. It was some kind of, oh, it was my, well, my second. So the birth of, yeah, yeah well, my second, the birth of one of your children. Yeah. We got a bill from the anesthesiologist for like four grand. And the, the longer version of that story, you know, is our second son. And so at least for my wife, what they said about having a second child was true in terms of the first child sort of paved the way for the second one. So the, the birth of the second one was easier on my wife. I grease the road, no pun intended. <laughs> and I'm just going based on what she said. I'm not putting words in her mouth, but no. So the anesthesiologist came in, sort of checked her out, gave her a once over. And then before he could even put 
the epidural in her back, they were, the nurses were pushing him aside and calling me over because our second, the way they had her positioned to put the epidural in opened up her hips so that the second baby basically popped right out. So, (laughs) and then we got a bill for a full anesthesiology bill. And I said, this is nuts. I'm not the anesthesiologist. I'll pay him for giving her the once over, but they didn't even, the needle never punctured the back. What are you, what are you doing? And so I called and I negotiated with him. And I think I ended up, and one of the things that I said, I didn't lie, but what I said was my dad's going to help me pay this bill, but he himself just had a medical issue and Mm -hmm. is waiting on the receipt of some Aflac money. And so I need to put off paying you because he's going to help pay me, but he's got to wait for his Aflac money. Now, all of that was true, except the way that it worked is I paid the bill. He reimbursed me a little bit and he didn't need the Aflac money to do so. <laughs> but yeah. technically, I did not lie to the collection company. All right. We're, we're, this is going to air. I Well, and even if we did, we're beyond the statute of limitations now. <laughs> okay. So, um, I ended up paying, I think it was a $4,000 debt. I ended up settling it for $1,200. Bucks, and I, I forget, it was either three payments of 400 or four payments of 300 a month. And it was over. So even if you don't know the amount of the bill, or even if you don't know what it's going to cost going in, you can also negotiate it on the back end. So both of my sons had the same lazy eye surgery and, Mm -hmm. um, I think two or three years apart. And so my younger son had it first three, four years ago. And I remember for that one, I just said to my wife, start sending them something. What, 25 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month? A good faith payment type of thing. Something. And eventually they called and they said, would you like that to be your payment plan? And we said, yes. And so they did. Sure. And they, that was the payment plan that we were on. So even if you don't know the amount going in like I did, and part of the reason I knew to ask is my younger son had already been through it before. So I sort of knew what questions to ask. So, and if you're listening to this show in this episode, now you know what questions to ask. But if someone didn't, you can always negotiate it when the bill comes in. I think the mistake a lot of people make is they take a credit card, either an existing card or a new card or whatever, and they say, well, here, put the entire medical bill on this card. And the reason that I think that's a problem or a mistake is, number one, that credit card carries an interest rate that the medical bill doesn't. So you're already- I'm going to stop you there a second. Not everybody knows this, but if you get a bill from a hospital- they are not allowed to charge interest. Is that true? I don't know if they're not allowed to charge interest, but I know in every settlement I've ever made, whether for me or another client, in every settlement I've made with the hospital, it's always been 0% interest. Or at least I, I see medical bills come in and they'll say 30, 60, 90 days out, and they don't show interest on those when you get the bill. But it's it's interesting. I think by law, they would have to say if they're charging interest on the back of the bill or somewhere. I think, so. I think somewhere it would have to yeah. disclose it. But it's something I've always negotiated, zero right. percent interest. So, And even if there is an interest rate tied to the hospital bill, it's not going to be the 17, 18, 19, 20%, whatever the credit cards carry. And a hospital bill, they don't necessarily report it to a credit agency. But if you've got a credit card debt, that's a whole nother ball of wax. Right. Which can destroy your life. Well, not destroy you, but make life more destroy difficult. The cost yeah. of insurance is higher. Cost of buying a house, a car, anything else can now escalate as a result of that. Right. So to my knowledge, the medical companies do not report to the credit bureaus. To my knowledge, you're not going to take a credit hit by not paying a medical bill. Now, like you said, if you transfer that medical bill 
to a credit card. To credit card. And yeah. If you don't pay the credit card, your credit's going to get beaten up. So tip number one, pay the hospital directly, negotiate. Tip number two, do not pay a medical bill on a credit card unless you know you can pay it off in full. Right. Immediately, right? Right. And just like any use of a credit card. The points aren't worth it. Yeah. If you know you can pay it off, then... And, you know, after bankruptcy is over, I've often advised clients go get, you know, because they'll get credit card offers pretty quick after the bankruptcy is over. Because one of the rules within bankruptcy is that you can't file Chapter 7 except once every eight years. So the credit card companies know that if you get your bankruptcy discharge and they give you a new card and you run that card up, now you're on the hook for at least eight years. So a lot of times... I'll have clients either get like a secured credit card or debit card where they mm-hmm. they pay the bank 500 bucks and then they've got a $500 limit on the card. It's like a cash card, yeah. like a gift card. Or sometimes yeah. they'll get a very low, like they'll get a card, but it's only got $1,000 worth of credit on it or whatever. But a lot of times what I'll tell them to do is go out and charge groceries and that's it. And then when you get the bill paid off and then the next month go charge gas to fill up your car. And It's a way to build back up the credit rating. Bankruptcy will be on your credit seven to 10 years, depending on what chapter you file, but it really only impact your credit for two or three years. Uh, I've had clients that have bought houses three years outside of a bankruptcy. So it is possible. It does happen. The other big mistake that I see people make is they'll cash in their 401k to pay a medical debt. Or similarly, they'll pull on their home line of credit to pay a medical debt. Mm -hmm. And so what you're actually doing is you're taking an asset that is otherwise exempt. So if you file bankruptcy, they can't touch your 401k, they can't touch your IRA, they can't touch Hmm. home in Florida. So you're taking that asset that is otherwise exempt. I'm now making it vulnerable, right? Turning it into cash to pay. The hospital can't take your house away from you. I don't think anywhere, but especially here in Florida. The hospital can't take your house. The hospital can't take your 401k. The hospital can't do that kind of stuff. So why would you want to deplete those assets to pay off a creditor that can't affect those assets. So that's another big mistake that I see is people pulling on a line of credit on their house or, or cashing in a 401k or whatever to pay a medical bill. I still think the easiest and simplest alternative, call a creditor, you know, hey, I just had XYZ surgery. I'm not able to work right now. I don't have my Aflac money yet. Look into Aflac if you, if you don't have it already. What can I do to to help pay this. But at the end of the day, no, the credit, the medical billing companies and the medical companies, they don't really impact credit. They don't, I don't think I've ever seen one try to garnish wages. Mm -hmm. I've ever seen one try to repossess assets. They're not going to be as aggressive as the IRS or as a student loan or or a credit card or a mortgage or something like that. They still can be nasty in calls and and aggressive. It it depends upon who they hire to collect those bills, correct? True. And one thing I I said it to a client today, so how thick is your skin? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you're on Social Security. That's your only source of income. You rent, so you don't have a homestead. And one of the things Florida says is that not only do you get a $1,000 exemption for your car, you get a $1,000 wild card exemption. You can use it on anything, clothes, jewelry, furniture, money in the bank, tax refunds, whatever you want to use it on. If you don't own a homestead property, that $1,000 wild card exemption becomes a $5,000 wild card exemption. Whoa. It was an 82-year-old man, I believe. No car. He's not driving anymore. No house, so he didn't have to worry about homestead. Living on, I want to say like fifteen hundred bucks a month Social Security, which is not enough mm-hmm. to trigger any bankruptcy issues. But it's not 
uh, subject to garnishment from creditors because it's social security. All of his assets, he had his beat up couch and his recliner and his, his TV and his coffee table and his kitchen table and chairs. And, you know, so no assets of any significant value. And I said, look, the credit card company can't take anything from you. You can't get blood from a stone. You can't get you don't blood. really have anything. You are what we call in Florida, your judgment proof. And if you're judgment proof, the creditors can't take what you don't have. So disconnect your phone. <laughs> yeah. If you have a quote, thick skin, don't worry about it. You're going to get some calls. You may get a lawsuit in the mail, but if you know they can't take anything from you, what difference does it make? You're 82 years old. So what are you going to need credit for? I knew somebody like that. What are you buying on credit? Now, if they don't have that thick skin, if they don't want the calls from the creditors, if they don't want the lawsuits, if they don't want all that nastiness, that's when bankruptcy may come into play because bankruptcy will just eliminate it all. And the phone calls stop, the collection letters stop, the collection. And if they don't, the bankruptcy court has pretty severe sanctions for creditors that don't stop Really, after someone's filed bankruptcy. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen bankruptcy judges sanction creditors in the tens of thousands of dollars range for violating the bankruptcy stay. The bankruptcy stay is automatic. The instant I push that button and file the case, the automatic stays in place. Now there, there is some reasonableness there. So if I push the button and file the case, and at the time I filed the case, there's a letter already in the mail. That's not a stay violation. Or a call comes in that afternoon or right. whatever it is. Yeah. It's got to, it's got to have some reasonable amount of time to filter through the creditors uh, system. But the creditor makes a claim in the bankruptcy case and then two weeks later calls and says, hey, deadbeat, how come you haven't paid me? Which again, they're not allowed to say that. But if they did, not only would that be a violation of debt collection law, but it'd also be a violation of the bankruptcy stay. And that creditor is going to end up paying a significant chunk of money for that mistake. Of course, then the person who has filed bankruptcy needs to at least one, identify who the caller is and where they're calling from and to report them. Otherwise it just doesn't go through. So you have to have to do that. So you had mentioned something about the homes, and we're talking Florida, it's not true in every state, but because we're both here in Florida, that the home itself, if you own it, is exempt. And if you don't own a home and you're renting, that's not an issue either. The, prob the problem there is, or the question I have there is, what happens if you don't own a home or you don't own a, you know, a structure to live in, and now you're a renter, but you can't afford that monthly rent? then you become homeless? Or is there any way for the person living in the house to protect them from not being kicked out of the apartment that they consider home? So one thing that bankruptcy will allow you to do and, and actually requires you to do is to continue to pay your normal living expenses. So when someone files bankruptcy, they don't have to pay their credit cards anymore, but they have to pay their electricity. They have to pay for their phone. Mm -hmm their mortgage. If they want to keep the house, they have to pay for their car. If they want to keep the car, they have to continue to pay rent if they want to continue to live in the house. So if you are renting somewhere and you file bankruptcy, yes, you have to keep paying your rent. If you can't afford to do so, you got a couple of options. Number one, call the landlord. You know, hey, I want to stay Negotiate. here. You know, I can pay you something. I'm just having a rough patch right now and, and see. If the landlord says no, because remember the landlord may have a mortgage that they have to pay. And so right. if you're not paying the landlord, they can't pay their mortgage and you're going to end up getting foreclosed anyway. So sometimes the landlord may not be able to, or maybe the landlord is just mean and says, no, who knows? But you can always call your, your landlord and negotiate. You can try to find someplace cheaper to rent. I've had people move 
other people in. I'm living in a two bedroom, so I'm going to have someone else move in. Yeah, roommate type of thing to help pay for the expenses. I'm doing, I got, I, I had a, a friend of mine, a, a networking partner friend of mine, uh, email me and say, Hey, can I pay you to rent out your conference room once a week? Sure. And I'll do the same thing at the office. If it, right. you know, even if it's a hundred bucks, it reduces my rent by a hundred bucks. That's, that's fine. Out of college, I rented a house with a bunch of people and my yeah. parents called it the commune, but it was great because you, you had I'm, your own private spaces and I could close the door and we could all meet and socialize down in the kitchen, which was yeah. also great. I did the same thing. You know, you can also, what I would maybe suggest is avoiding the the commercial apartments, like the apartment complexes, because they're going to be more corporate and they're going to have less flexibility. And I would say maybe try to find a real estate investor that owns a single family home or, or a, a duplex or a triplex or whatever, mm -hmm. because you're going to be able to explain your story to that person a lot. You know, hey, I had this medical issue come up and that a little bit more empathy and understanding of the situation too. Yeah. Right. Does the same hold true in a care facility? Do you, because I mean, technically many of them that are independent, they are, they're basically apartments with three meals a day. Yeah. I am not entirely sure of the answer. There are some debts that are not, I'll, I'll make this analogy. And th there this is also, I'm just going to interrupt saying, this is also providing that somebody's not on Medicaid because there's only so many beds in these facilities for Medicaid patients. That's where right. that, that scarcity falls in. So what I've said before, there are certain debts that are not dischargeable by a bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. So recent IRS debt is not dischargeable. If you owed 10 grand in taxes last year, bankruptcy is not going to get rid of that this year. But what I've said is bankruptcy may get rid of other things. So it gets rid of your minimum payments on your credit cards. It gets rid of that cable bill collection from three apartments ago. You know, it gets rid of a lot of that stuff. And if you can get rid of a lot of that stuff, that may free up the money. You know, I'm paying $1,000 a month in minimum payments. Well, if you don't have that $1,000 a month in minimum payments anymore, you've got more money to pay to the mortgage, the mm -hmm. rent, the IRS, the student loans are mm -hmm. non-dischargeable in a lot of cases. And so if I'm not paying these other debts, I have more money potentially in my budget to pay the stuff that the bankruptcy doesn't impact. I might approach your care facility analysis, at least initially with that same analysis. In other words, I don't have enough to pay the care facility, but I'm paying $1,000 a month in minimum credit card payments. Well, a bankruptcy is going to eliminate that credit need card, yep. to pay the credit, the $1,000 in minimum credit card payments. And maybe that frees up enough space that I can now afford to pay the care facility. So I know we only have a short period of time here left, but what I'd like to do is if they're, let's say the top quick top five tips that people should do to quickly say, I see this coming or I'm not sure, but I have like this gut feeling that maybe mom or dad, or maybe we're going to go through this. I mean, you can't hide from it. You, yeah. you know, something's going to happen. What do I start to do? I think they're all kind of common sense kinds of things. So number one budget negotiate, I balance my checkbook every yep. month and I do it the old fashioned mm -hmm. way. You know, what, what's, what's pending, what's, yep. what's been cleared by the bank, all that kind I of stuff. Too. Now I was an accounting major, so I sort of ingrained, but balance your checkbook every month. Don't rely on, you know, Hey, the bank says I have X, so I've got that to spend. I would also pay attention to the bank statements when they come in, especially if you're looking after a parent or somebody, take a look at their bank statements, see what's, what's going in and coming out budget, make sure that the amount coming in is, is it greater than or equal to the amount going mm -hmm. out. And I've got a bunch of tips that I go through on how to cut and save within your budget. 
call the creditors. If you know you're, you're having issues, call the creditors ahead of time. Hey, I'm current now, but I see there may be a point coming up where I'm not because, you know, I, I haven't been able to work because of the surgery. What can you do to help? Call the creditors and then talk to somebody. I mean, I, I do free consultations all the time. So don't be afraid to ask. Yeah. One last question before we, we go, and we can always do another show because my guess is there are going to be a lot of other questions, how you can reach Sean as well as his book. And I mean, it's great to be able to have this conversation because it's a conversation that's uncomfortable for people to yeah. even admit that there's they're financially vulnerable. But is there a cost to filing for bankruptcy? There is. So in most cases, the I, I believe the court costs, I know here in Tampa, the court is going to charge, it's $338 for a chapter seven, the filing fee. It's $313 for a chapter 13. That's a lot for somebody who doesn't have. It is. Um, I, I run credit, which costs me, I want to say $32 to run a credit report mm -hmm. as a hard cost per person. You're also, as a prerequisite to filing bankruptcy, you got to get something called credit counseling, which is mm -hmm. nothing more than a rubber stamp. It takes about an hour. You can do it over the phone. Attorney fees to do all the work for you. Yeah. That credit counseling is going to be anywhere from, there are some places that charge as low as 15, 20 bucks and some places that charge as much as 50 bucks for that. And then the attorney's fees, like you said. Now, one of the interesting things about attorney's fees, there are a lot of disclosures. The bankruptcy petition itself, seven or 13, doesn't matter. The petition itself is 50 some odd pages. Mm. Could be more if there's a lot of creditors. A lot of those supporting schedules are all the different disclosures that you have to provide to the bankruptcy court and the, and the bankruptcy trustees. One of those disclosures is how much did I pay my attorney? And we've got to disclose how much we were paid, not only in, in attorney's fees, but also in costs. Mm -hmm. And if the bankruptcy court thinks that we are charging an unreasonably high amount, the bankruptcy court will force us to give some of that money back. So here in the Tampa Bay area, there's going to be different, I mean, check range, with whatever yeah. attorney, but the range, I would say for something in the $1,500 range okay. in terms of attorney's fees, it could be more, it could be less depending on the circumstances. But again, there are some programs that will allow you to file pro bono, some attorneys that do pro bono work. I do some, I try not to do, I try not to do so many that I'm going to hurt the law firm, but oh, you got to keep a roof over your head too. I get it. Yeah, yeah. I got a mortgage to pay as well. I got medical bills. I got to pay too. But you know, one or two cases I might take on a year through some legal aid sure. pro bono type program. But there are also situations where you can apply to the bankruptcy court in indigent, indigent. Yeah. The, the, Indigent. Indigent. Now you're like you're good. You're gonna get me to slip up on it. <laughs> yeah. Wow, words. Um, but yeah, indigent application, indigency application, yeah. and the court may waive some of those, some or all of those oh. filing fees. So there's that option as well. So again, just I give a free consultation for bankruptcy purposes. So reach out. It's not gonna cost anything but maybe 45 minutes to an hour's worth of time, and we'll go through all the ins and outs. Now know that even though bankruptcy is federal law. Every state has its own exemptions. So that's why bankruptcy may differ between Florida and Georgia, for example. Right. And then within each state, each section. So Florida is broken up in the Southern District, the Middle District, and the Northern District. We're here in the middle in Tampa. But even between Southern, Middle, and Northern, there are different local rules. Hmm. So bankruptcy in Tampa may not be exactly the same as a bankruptcy, for example, in Miami. Right. right. So you, you want to be sort of careful about that. But but yeah, I, I had a consultation the other day with a guy in Delray Beach, which is in the Southern District, which 
I can't, I, I can, I mean, I'm, I'm legally able to, but I just don't want to go as far as Delray beach to practice a bankruptcy. So I'm going to help him find an attorney down there that can do it. Well, Sean, this has been helpful. Thank you. I will probably be back to you for another show where we can dive into some some other specifics that would be helpful for people. But ultimately, in the end, if you are caring for a parent or anybody in a family member where you are potentially financially overseeing their care, um, their well-being, their daily lives, do try, do your best. Uh, say, don't even do your best, just do it. Oversee and make sure that, in fact, they are financially sound, even if it's close to the wire, just keep an eye on it because this this can really sneak up fast, especially on somebody who who may not even want to admit that their finances are tight and are too proud to to admit that to an adult child or or even another spouse. So right. it's a tough subject. It's an emotional subject, but don't let pride get in the way. Think with your head and your heart at the same time and everything will be okay. So thank you, Sean. I appreciate your time and the work that you're doing to help so many. It's really terrific. I appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be a guest on the show. All right. We'll see you later. Take care. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021 Caremanity LLC.